I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Girl, real talk. This whole it's a new year, time to reinvent myself trash is not the vibe for 2024. You can find someone who loves you for you as you are. You don't need to read a stack of self-help books, only eat sad salads, or like start meditating at 5 a.m. to be ready for dating. So yeah, my advice is to download Bumble and find someone who embraces you the way you are right now. Let me know how it goes. I think like gardening is full of heartbreak and so is writing because you're there's, it's full of failure. And that feels embarrassing. That goes back to embarrassment again. It's like, it feels so embarrassing to be bad at something, but it's also like in service of something else, you, you make a mistake and you learn from it. And then you, hopefully you don't make that same mistake or you make that mistake to a lesser extent next time. I'm Jordan Kistner, author of the essay collection, Thin Places. And this is Thresholds, a weekly series of conversations with writers and artists about moments of epiphany or transformation that changed their lives and their work. A moment that they stepped across, like a threshold, into something new, and the way that experience changed everything they wrote afterward. This episode of Thresholds is brought to you by MUBI, a curated streaming service showing exceptional films from around the globe. Every day, MUBI premieres a new film by iconic directors or emerging auteurs. There's always something new to discover. With MUBI, each and every film is hand-selected, like your own personal film festival, streaming anytime and anywhere. The selection is really so incredibly good, from modern classics like First Cow and Nomadland to 1960s masterpieces from Japan and France and Brazil, Norway. I'm always discovering something new and wonderful there. 
you can try Mubi free for 30 days at Mubi.com slash thresholds. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash thresholds for a whole month of great cinema for free. To keep everyone safe, these interviews were recorded remotely, usually on a cell phone in somebody's home. And so you might hear some sounds and signs of life, like a car backfiring, a dog walking through the room, usually my dog walking through the room. Thank you for your patience with that. I met the writer and graphic artist Kristen Radke in Las Vegas. She is the art director and deputy publisher of The Believer, and I was in residence at the Black Mountain Institute, which houses The Believer. So for about a month, we had apartments a few doors down from each other last spring, and it was a really lonely time. Nobody was vaccinated yet. Nobody could congregate. And yet we would meet outside and, you know, talk to each other from many feet away, which felt like kind of an apt way to meet Kristen because her most recent book, Seek You, is a graphic book about loneliness as it's touched her own life and as an epidemic in American culture. She is also, and this detail is relevant to our conversation, a prolific gardener. In the middle of the pandemic, she started giving away seedlings to her neighbors in Brooklyn and has given away thousands. She came on to talk about loneliness, about gardening, about writing, and about mortality. Hope you enjoy. I started taking care of plants in, I guess, 2017. I had always been like, I I always was like, I have a terrible green thumb. I can't keep it. Like, you know, someone would send you a plant for your birthday and it would be dead, like before it even like, you know, made its way to your shelf. But I, um, I moved to a place where I had uh, some outdoor space and I just started, um, planting things and, and it all felt, I mean, it, it felt sort of like the process of making a project, which like a creative project, which is that at the beginning, it feels completely impossible. It feels like, uh, I have no idea how I'm going to make this work. Like everything is just this jumble or it starts as sort of a germ of an idea that feels exciting and possible. And then you sit down to it and you're like, there's no way. And then over time you just sort of learn the language of it and you learn, you know, how pieces, certain pieces go together and some things die. And then you realize, you know, you can put something else in its place and it makes more sense to you, I think. And that's true for, you know, caring for plants and for gardening as much as it is for making a book or making an essay or anything. How many years ago was it that you decided to, to green your thumb? I think like three, maybe three or four years. Oh, that recently? Yeah. Because I think of you as a robust person. (laughs) Well, I think like it happens fast. I think it's like that with writing too, or with, you know, I mean, if you're two years into a book project, even if it's your first book, you're kind of an expert on at least some portion of that process. And I think it's similar for kind of any hobby, you know, a year or two is a lot of time to invest in something, even if you still feel like an amateur in your head. And I think I, you know, the reason that I'd never slowed, slowed down and done something like that before is before I finished my first book, I felt panicked about like, I have to prove something. I have to make something. I don't know if I can make something. And I felt like I had to spend all of my time working all of the time. And that changed for me after my first book, because I, I realized like, Oh, we're all going to die. We need to do other things than stare at our computer every day, all day. You know, I mean, it was, it was definitely kind of one of those awakenings, but it was also like, uh, give yourself permission to care about something else. When in the book cycle did that, did that occur to you? It was after it was, it was finished. It was definitely after it was finished and maybe even after like the publication, because I mean, everything just feels so high anxiety, at least for me. I mean, I don't want to generalize, but in the beginnings of things, everything just feels, it's that insurmountable thing I was talking about earlier. 
And then after a while, you know, I mean, I think the best part of publishing that first book for me was when it was well after it was over and it, it didn't feel like my identity anymore. It just felt like something I did once. We all went out to drinks after my first book launch in this was, I don't know, 2017, early 2017. And I remember my friend turned to my friend, Dan turned to me and said like, congratulations, like you did it. Like, how do you feel? And I said, well, I guess I'm just going to do this five more times until I, and then I'll die. And I just started crying. (laughs) And it was like this, it was sort of like this anti-climax, no matter how good it feels to finish something, it's still like never, it never, somehow it doesn't feel in that, in that moment, at least for me, it doesn't feel like enough, even if it's everything you, you were working towards and everything you ever wanted. And so I think I realized I had to stop working for those moments, like working for a book, working for a publication, working for a result, because it's never, it never adds up to, to enough. This just reminds me of a conversation I was having with a friend whose first book just came out and she was like, I feel terrible. Like, why do I feel so terrible? And I was like, because, because your life isn't like, because today isn't that different from yesterday. Exactly. And like, you've spent that much, you spent all this time thinking that the book was going to change everything. Yeah, it was going to change your life. Totally. Yeah. And like, you're you're still you and your life changed my life life. in a certain way. You know, I mean, it brought so many more people into my life. I met so many more people. I had so many more opportunities. I mean, it's probably the reason I got the job I have now, you know, like there, it, it, it really did. My life was very different, but also it was completely the same. Yeah. And, and those changes probably didn't all happen the day of publication, right? It's like you're, you're, you're sort of gunning for that day. Yeah. And then you wake up and it's a day. Yeah. Why, of all the things that you could have chosen after that realization of like, oh, I'm going to die and I got to have other things that I care about too and other things that I do. Why plants? Particularly since it wasn't something you felt like you had been good at before. I don't know. I can't, I don't know. I, I guess because like I was at Home Depot once getting like a shelf and then I saw a blueberry plant for... $20 outside. And I was like, all right. And like that blueberry bush had a very hard life the first year because I did not know how to take care of it. But now it's still, it's still going, you know? So I think it was just something I stumbled into, which I think is like a lot of things in my life. I didn't, if I would have, if you would have told me, you know, 15 years ago that I would be writing graphic and drawing graphic novels, I would have said you were mistaken. You know, I thought I was going to be a certain kind of writer or a certain kind of artist. And, you know, you just, you discover things that interest you. What kind of writer did you think you were going to be? I thought I would just write essays and I love essays and essays are definitely the thing I like to read most. And I still think I make, I mean, even when, if my book gets branded a memoir or whatever, you know, whatever they want to call it, it's still essays. They're just illustrated. And, but it took me a long time to figure out how to, how to do, you know, drawing and writing together to kind of create an argument. Yeah. And, um, you like pretty quickly turned, as far as I'm aware, you pretty quickly turned cultivating plants into not just like a really big part of your day, but also a big part of your like engagement with your community, right? Mm -hmm. You give away hundreds and hundreds of seedlings. I do. Uh, I do. And I, I just leave them outside of my house and people take them and it's been a really great way to interact with my community. And it's the, you know, I mean, it's one of, I think the sort of hidden blessings of COVID, even though I hate it when people talk about like 
here's what we, you know, here's what we lost, but here what we gained, you know, it's kind of nauseating to me, but it was an opportunity to interact with people in a way I hadn't before. And I think a lot of people experienced that and interact with people in a way that wasn't just about writing. You know, my whole community is our literary people. You know, it's how I met my partner. It's how I met my closest friends. You know, it's like all we do is we're in this world which can be, I've never felt kind of stifled by that. I know I have friends who are like, I need to go interact with people in a different industry because I can't talk about this anymore. It it feels so claustrophobic. And for me, I think part of it is I don't have very good work-life boundaries. So I like to be, you know, if I go to dinner with a friend, I like to feel like I'm also kind of doing some creative thinking there on a project because we're talking through something. But it also, I didn't have access to people who weren't doing the very specific thing that I was doing. So I think like doing a plant giveaway or something like that, or mutual aid also just gives you access to different perspectives and points of view. Yeah. When did you decide you wanted to start doing that? Um, it was during the pandemic last summer. Um, last summer. Yeah. And it was just, uh, I don't remember how it started. I think I maybe had some extra. So I was like, why don't I just give these away? And then I kind of got addicted to the feeling of it. Have you had any particular interactions around the giving away of the seed, the seedlings that have stuck out to you or that surprised you? I didn't expect it to be sort of an emotional touchstone in the way that it was particularly, you know, at peak, you know, I, I lived on a block, there was, there were tents on my block. There was, there's a, um, a sort of physical rehabilitation center on the corner of my block that was turned into a COVID hospital. So there were white tents all up and down the block, you know, all we heard like a lot of New Yorkers, all we heard those first few weeks were dead silent and lots of birds chirping and just sirens 24 hours a day. There was never not a siren going. And I think that was especially true for those of us who lived near hospitals. And it was just terrifying. I mean, it was really, we were, everybody, it was at kind of at that stage where people were still afraid to go outside. And this was a way in which I could interact from some, with someone, you know, from six feet away. And we could just like talk about something that wasn't the thing that was going on. And that was, became very emotional and moving to me in a way I didn't expect. There's a year that you reference um, in CQ that I wanted to ask you about because yeah. it's, you you talk about it sort of like a turning point, um, which is the year that you took a it's the year that you took a job in the city where you had to drive everywhere, and all of a sudden you were you got lonely in a different way. Mm-hmm. Can you? Can you tell me a little bit about that year? Yeah. So it was, I, I was graduating from grad school. I, I was one of those people who went to grad school right out of undergrad, which I think is not particularly smart because you don't know how the world works in the same way. You know, I mean, I, I worked all through undergrad, you know, 20 or 30 or 40 hours a week. And I felt like I had experience in the world, but not without a support system that was provided to me by school, which is you know, throughout a lot of, a lot of people's lives, it's how you kind of acquire friends and community. And so I moved to a new town and it was, it was horrible. I mean, it was like the first time I, I had to make work for myself or for on my own schedule without someone being like, it's your turn to turn in for workshop on February 1st or whatever. And I just felt 
so lonely. And I like it, I really lost a year of work at least. I, you know, I would just come home from work and feel depressed and watch Netflix and then wake up and do it again. And I would just like scroll through a Word doc, having no idea how to keep moving forward on it. And then, you know, slowly you start to think through how maybe something can work or you're, you know, you spend a weekend staring at it and something suddenly you start typing again, you know, you kind of have those moments, but that was, um, yeah, I mean the, the moment I write about in the book is I, I moved there alone and maybe a month in, I realized I hadn't physically touched another person since I'd gotten there, which was like shock. You know, it was one of these things where I think I was, I remember like laying in bed, probably watching some terrible show on Netflix and my cat started crawling at my, across my back. And I was like, Whoa, what is this sensation that I'm feeling? You know, and and I was like, oh, you you have to make some changes because this is not sustainable. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that because so much of the book is about trying to understand loneliness and how it works on people. But I'm curious about how you learned then or maybe since then to cope with loneliness, like what you do when you're lonely. I I think intellectualizing it helped me a lot. I, I mean, writing the book made me less lonely because it made me understand what loneliness is and like how it functions and why. And I think, you know, going back earlier when you asked about like a threshold, I think the threshold, one of the thresholds I'd like to talk about, and I think the one that really did change my creative life was coming to terms with embarrassment. And, or mm. I would say coming to terms with the fact that I will always feel embarrassed all the time with with my work and with working and just working through that. And I think that's what I was feeling then with my inability to work was like, I'd sit down and feel like, this is so stupid. This is so embarrassing. I don't know how to do this. Like I'm a fraud, I'm a failure, whatever, like all of those feelings. And I think confronting loneliness is the same way because it can feel like a personal failing. And it's not, I mean, it's sometimes it's a set of circumstances. Sometimes it's, you know, something you're biologically predisposed to because everyone has a different threshold, uh, for, well, for loneliness, um, and for when they experience loneliness, it's programmed into us, you know, since birth. And, um, the fact that in America we're, we're really set up for isolation. I mean, it's like sort of coded into the American ideology. I think I want to first ask you more about the feeling of embarrassment that Mm -hmm. felt tied to your work. Like, where did that come from? What did it feel like? I don't know where it came from other than the fact that I think like writing is super embarrassing. Like putting anything (laughs) into the world is totally humiliating. Like even the act of doing it. I mean, like writing a bad sentence is, it makes you feel like an idiot. You know, like the figuring out, not knowing where pieces go together or like doing a bunch of research about something you should already know. And then, you know, preparing to become like a pseudo expert so that you can like, you know, put it out into the world in some way. It all feels kind of icky to me, you know? And, and I think that was something I, I realized I just had to, that wasn't going to stop. Even when I felt more confident, even when I, even if I had, you know, a book that was, that got a good review or something like that. Part of that is, is related to a feeling of fraudulence and feeling like we're all like, fooling everyone all the time, which I think is normal. And I think is something a lot of artists feel, but there's this David Carr quote that I found, I can see in my notes, I was just searching for it in my notes and I, I wrote it out in August 15th, 2016. Um, 
And the quote is, I now inhabit a life I don't deserve, but we all walk this earth feeling we are frauds. The trick is to be grateful. And I think that that sort of opened something up for me, this idea that I was never going to feel sure of what I was doing. Even if there are moments when I'm like, okay, I know I'm, I've hit something. This is the direction I need to go. I'm never going to feel confident that I'm making the right choice or that I'm the right person to tell a story or that I'm not going to make a complete fool of myself. And I, you just have to work in spite of that. Yeah. That's, that feels so, um, that feels so wise to me. I, that's also been my experience that like the thing that I had to get over in order to work enough to get better at anything was Mm -hmm. raising the, um, my own tolerance for feeling humiliated by how bad I was, (laughs) you know, um, that like, it is so crushing to be not as good as you want to be at something you love so much. And like that feeling all by itself makes, makes a lot of people, makes me want to stop, mm-hmm. right? Makes just be like, oh, this is useless and I'm not good at it. And th- th- I can't handle this. This is a terrible feeling. Um, and learning to make friends with that feeling mm-hmm. or at least just like let it be in the room with to you. To tolerate it. Yeah. Um, is I found it really hard. I found that it took me, I don't know, some number of years. Was that, was that a long process for you? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm still, it's still a process. Like I think, you know, when I sat down to work this morning, I knew I had a half an hour before work to try to make, put work onto a page. And I just couldn't because I was like, this is too confusing. Like, I don't know where to go from here, but, but a lot of that was about second guessing because part, most of it is just about sitting down and starting to type. And if you can't get to that point, then you're never going to make anything. And so to this morning, I didn't make anything, which is okay. You know, tomorrow's another day. And, and I think that also comes back to the not beating yourself up about, you know, like wasted time or lost time or false starts, you know, working in the wrong direction, um, for sometimes for quite some time, sometimes for years. And, and part of that is feeling like, uh, like a fool, you know, of like that, we only have so much time staring at our laptop before we die. Like, why did I waste this bulk of it on this, on this thing that led me astray? But, you know, you learn from all of that. Do you feel like you got comfortable with the embarrassment of writing or of, you know, making creative work before you got comfortable with the embarrassment of loneliness or of writing about loneliness? I think I got comfortable with loneliness first. I think that I, someone asked me the other day in an, in a, in an interview conversation about, did I, was I ever embarrassed? Did I ever feel embarrassed about writing about something that was kind of embarrassing, which is loneliness. And I don't remember ever feeling that way. I mean, I I think maybe I wanted to, now that I'm saying that I'm kind of second guessing myself, because I think there was maybe a moment where I resisted putting myself in the book and I, and I was resistant to saying yes, of course I'm, yes, of course I'm lonely because it does feel like kind of a personal failing or it feels like you're a loser or something like that, you know, but it's, but it never really, um, much impacted. I think the way that I wrote or, or it never kept me from wanting to pursue the project. Um, because I always felt like it was just a valid subject and something that was so important to talk about and to, and to sort of create an intellectual discourse about, you know, it's like, how do you intellectualize something that's very emotional, which I think is always an interesting question. Yeah. I was wondering if that is 
a like conscious theme in your work because it feels like something that I see in both of your books mm. of taking something like some deep emotional experience and turning it into an intellectual and researched topic or exercise. Does that feel like a thing that is co- like a core, a core value of your, of your like practice? Definitely. And it's hard for me to know where that impulse comes from. I mean, I think when I feel something, I want to understand it. And I think that research is part of the way I understand or make sense of it. Or when I observe a close friend who I'm, I'm unable to make unlonely, or like I can't make her feel better and I can't figure out why. Reading about sort of psychologically what someone might be going through or, you know, like uh, social, socially what someone, what someone might be going through helps me understand that and take it maybe less personally. But I think also there is this, you know, we talked about, I, I mentioned the word intellectualized before. I think there also is this, you know, maybe it relates to embarrassment of, of like, you know, the way that people review memoirs or the way that people talk about memoirs on like Goodreads or something like that is very different from the way that people talk about novels. And particularly when they're the memoirs of women. And I think that there can be a sort of embarrassing, like, you know, like confessional poetry sort of became, you know, like, ah, it's just confessional. It's not, it's not smart. You're just talking about your feelings. And I think I do sometimes hear that in my head before, um, even like, I, I kind of feel like sometimes I'm writing for an invisible jury, you know, who's like going to judge, like either you're an intellectual or you're, you know, just like a confessional memoirist who's just, you know, like writing her letters, you know, in this sort of Victorian, boring Victorian way. (laughs) The thing I'm thinking about is the fact that a lot of the, the like overlap between the idea of like cultivating plants and of cultivating like a lack of embarrassment for your own work and lack of embarrassment about, um, loneliness is like a kind of softening, like trying to get, trying to get uh, yourself like softer toward a thing that feels difficult. Definitely. I totally agree. I mean, I think like plants also feel feminized in a way, like it feels like a a nurturing it, like it's, you know, people make a lot of, you know, sort of maternal comments and stuff like that. Um, which is of course also nonsensical you know, but it is, I think softening is a, is a beautiful word for it of, of sort of like granting yourself permission in a way to, I mean, I think too, when I, that's part of embarrassment too, is sometimes just naming the embarrassment, I think is an interesting technique. You know, it's like, um, what happens if I just say the thing that I'm afraid to say, like, what Mm -hmm. will that open up? And it doesn't mean, you know, Mm -hmm. I, I always, you know, I remind my students all the time, there's, there's a difference between writing and publishing. And, you know, I feel like even when I, you know, give talks at university or something like that, the first, one of the first thing a student asks is like, do do you struggle to put things into the world that you're afraid of how people will react, like how your family will, will feel or something like that? And of course, yes. But I think that you can't let that stop you from the writing because you might feel different when the writing is over or that writing of that vulnerable thing that you don't want to put out into the world might lead you to something that you do want to put into the world. And I, so I think part of it is about not stopping yourself before you try it. Did you have, what was that editing process like for you in this book? Did you do a lot of sort of going back and forth about material that felt too private? 
Not really. Mm -mm. I didn't feel like, you know, I, I, this book really began more as a research project. I was more interested in the, you know, if I, I think early drafts of it were much more sciencey. I was very interested in like how the brain feel experiences loneliness and then how that kind of ripples outwards into like a social context and constant, like on every read, my editor was like, where are you in this? Where are you in this? Why are you assigning yourself this project? And so over time I put myself more into it, which I think is, that's common for me at the beginning. I just, I'm, I'm more interested in kind of looking outward than I am at looking inward. And then I eventually come to terms with the fact that readers do sometimes need a guide to, you know, kind of carry them through and give them context for why they're engaging with what they're engaging with. Are you hesitant in the face of notes like that? Of like, why are you here? Put yourself like, what, put, put a little bit more of your own, of your own yeah. stake in it. Uh, some, I think I resist it at first. I'm always like, you know, what a, what stupid feedback. Like I def, you know, I also feel like, you know, from like kind of coming to writing through the workshop model, it is like a very easy piece of feedback to give of like, where are you in this? Like, I want more of you. Right. And I also sure. think that it's about curiosity. Like I've seen in workshop, a lot of people push someone to reveal something that really isn't relevant to a, an exploration just because someone's curious about like what happened next, you know, in a romantic relationship or like, what did the mom say then? You know, like there are these things, you know, it, it feels like sort of easy, easy feedback, but I think often it is, it is correct. Um, because it gives us sort of an emotional backing. And I like to, I like to move between sort of the emotional and the intellectual. I think that's an interesting, that's interesting for me as a writer to kind of figure out that balance. Did like at the end of writing this book, do you feel like you, when you experience loneliness, you experience it differently or you, I would imagine you might understand it differently, but does that change how you experience it? Definitely. I mean, I think, I think I said earlier, or at least I said it in my head that, that writing this book, writing about loneliness did make me less lonely. It, it, it it made me feel like I was a part of sort of a universal problem, certainly part of an, of an American problem. And making sense of something to me sort of just, you know, demystifies it on its face, which then makes me feel like I have more power in the situation, but which isn't to say loneliness doesn't still feel absolutely terrible. I mean, there's a, it's meant we're, you know, in terms of evolution where it's, it's supposed to feel terrible because it's dangerous to be alone. But, you know, sometimes that's not rash. It's sometimes, I mean, it's never really a rational feeling for me. It's like, I can go from feeling very fulfilled to feeling lonely in like a half an hour if I'm alone. And it's just because I'm feeling, usually it's because I'm feeling unsatisfied with some area of my life. And so I feel like I need validation which I think goes back to, again, embarrassment. That's an embarrassing feeling to be like, someone reinforce me, tell me I'm worth something. But it's also <laughs> like, I, I'm i feeling like humiliated about a certain aspect of my life, whether it's like a failing at my day job or a failing at my, you know, within my the file of my book and just feeling like I need access to somebody else's brain because I'm tired of being in my own. Yeah. Do you... um have you, do you ever read when you're lonely? Like, does reading do it for you? It depends on the book, but yes. I mean, I think that's when I really gravitate towards nonfiction more so than novels. And I don't know why that is. Now I'm second guessing that too. But I, I think when I, when I'm feeling lonely, I want to see, or when we, you know, I talked about, I just said something about how 
I want to get out of my own brain. It's helpful for me then to inhabit somebody's, somebody else's mind. And I feel like in general, in nonfiction, particularly in essays, you get access to some, the working of someone's brain. Um, is sometimes like, sort of like the foremost thing on the page, which is, which to me is very comforting. Mm-hmm. How does that affect the way that you think about putting yourself as a voice on the page? I was reading, just thinking reading. about this. Yeah, or like what the phenomenon you just described, which is that like in nonfiction, in an essay, um, the voice on the page and the way that it functions can accompany a reader mm-hmm. um, in a way that maybe a fiction, a work of fiction can't, which is to say a work of fiction can't make you less lonely because it certainly does for me. But yeah. there is something like about hearing the direct voice uh, of another person as they are articulating themselves into the world that can feel like a, a different kind of transmission. And given yeah. that you are somebody who works in that medium, I wonder if that if that connection that you have sometimes to essay and to nonfiction changes the way or or affects the way you think about making it. Yes, definitely. I mean, I think that I think like many, I. I mean, I, I, I do, I should say there's a caveat that I, I do have writer friends who say I can't read much while I'm working because then I start writing like the writer that I'm reading, which is something I relate to. But I actually think for me, that's very valuable because over time you edit some of that out, but also having, you know, use employing a different voice to get into a sub into maybe like a, a part of a project that you're kind of stuck at to me is really helpful. And I can sometimes go back and be like, that doesn't sound like me. Like I can tell I was reading Michelle Orange or like, uh, you know, in that moment or something like that. Um, Mm -hmm. but I reading always makes me a better writer, uh, uh, like without, without fail. And sometimes when I feel really stuck at something, I'm like, I, you haven't read anything in a while. (laughs) Do you have people that you go like that you keep on a short stack of like, I haven't read in a while and I'm stuck. Let me go back to this voice. Definitely. Uh, I, you know, I just mentioned Michelle Orange, but I think, uh, this is running for your life. I read that. I reread that while I was writing, um, CQ because I do really like the way that she, she works. She moves between the intellectual and the emotional and the public and the private. Um, I think she's, she's great at that. Can I ask you more about your plants? Definitely. I want to um I want to hear about like how w- how you've learned to be good at taking care of plants. Like what makes you good at it now that you that like is that you didn't have before? <laughs> Why are you good yeah. at taking care of plants now? You just need information. Like you need you need to know this is what I need to do to keep this thing alive. And that's different for every plant, you know, like you can't water a succulent as much as you water a grass, you know, a grass. You can't, you, you know, there, there are things like that where you just have to sort of learn the mechanism for how something exists. And it's just about learning those things. Like it's just about acquiring knowledge. You know, certainly some people are maybe inherently more skilled at, at gardening than others, but I think largely that's a fiction. Like it's just, maybe you're more, maybe something feels more intuitive to you, but it's just about, it's just about acquiring facts of like knowing, okay, if I, if this leaf is dead, I need to cut it off so that the plant will give more energy to the leaves that are still living. You know, like that's something you just have to read on the internet or have your, your friendly neighbor in my case, come over and be like, you're doing a stupid thing to this plant. Stop doing that. And then you learn, (laughs) 
you know, it's just like, it's, you know, I, I'm using the word, I, sometimes I use the word vocabulary, but vocabulary isn't really all encompassing. It's just about learning the steps, I think, to, to making something live. And, you know, I, last, last summer I was like, okay, I want to try growing food. And like, I, you know, in the winter, I sometimes will do a lot of reading about plants because it's a space to kind of still feel like you're engaging with the natural world, even when everything is frozen and dead. And you're like, it's the kind of the, it's like preparing for a vacation. Like the doing research about it is sometimes part of the fun of the vacation mm-hmm. because you're, because you're, you get excited. And I feel like that over the winter about plants too. And I, I remember when I st- wanted to start growing vegetables, I was like, whoa, this is, I bought this book that was like vegetable gardeners for beginners. And I was like, there's no way this is so complex. This is so complex. I, how can I ever remember all these things? But you don't have to remember all of those things. Like you don't have to memorize each thing. You just have to know how to germinate a seed and then you figure it out from there. You can always Google what's going on with my bean plant or whatever and figure out what, what happens next. I, I have my friend, Naomi Huffman, who's a great writer. She sometimes once when I was very overwhelmed, she, she said to me, everything isn't all at once. And I think about that a lot because I think with a book project or with like a plant, you're like, you're seeing, you're seeing the end result with no idea how to get there. Or you have, you're like, I know I need to make a book. And it's like, you can't sit down and make a book. You can sit down and write a sentence, you know, and you have to think about what happens next, but you, but you can't think about really what happens next until you're thinking about the specific sentence that you're in. So I think in general, breaking things down into small discrete parts is extremely helpful for me, both as like a human person who wants to make things grow and thrive and as an artist. That's so smart. But it's also something that I feel like it's it's easy to forget, right? Yeah. Because there's something, I feel like we're hardwired in a way to look forward to what the end, the result that we need at the end mm-hmm. um, and get overwhelmed and yes. just like not be able to see that actually what you're talking about is 1500 intermediary steps. Exactly. You really only need to do two of them today. <laughs> exactly. And maybe if you don't How? get two of them done today, you are not going to die. Like you're, it's going to be okay. You know, like it sort of feels like if I make one mistake now, the whole thing is going to be ruined. And that's not true. Like you can make, you know, one seedling can die and you can plant another one. Like you can, you can completely be wrong about how one paragraph needs to work. And that's okay. You, you'll figure it out later. I think at the beginning of a project, I, I waste so much time figure, trying to figure out what, what the structure of something will be. And it's like, you don't, that will reveal itself to you as you write. You can't, it's like, you're not writing a five paragraph essay where you can write an outline and stick to it. You just, you can't. And, and I think some of that work that trying to figure out how the structure works is probably, you know, I, I, maybe I should resist the idea that it's wasted time because it's also you figuring out what the project is and what its goals are. And you do need to do some of that work, but I think that can't stop you also from putting stuff onto the page. How does that work? And I don't want to like stretch this metaphor too hard, but I'm genuinely (laughs) curious, like how is it, is it useful to like pre-plan a garden in a way? Like is is it good to do that with plants in a way that it's not good to do that with, with writing? Well, yeah, I think, and I think it is good to do with writing. I think it is good to say like, what do I want to create here? Like, what's my goal and how can I write in service of that goal? It's this, the, the thing is you have to be willing to change your mind when you get smarter, because hopefully every day you work, you get a little bit smarter because you understand the project and who you were when you started the project is like a idiot version of who you are at the end. 
And I think plants are like that too. I mean, if you don't plan, if you don't plan the shape of a garden, it will be total chaos. Like you, you need to think about how big will this plant get? How big will this plant that's starting as a seed be in the end? Because you need to figure out like where, how to space it out. And like, is this going to shade out something behind it and kill it? Or like, sometimes it's like, you can't plant a tomato next to, oh, uh, you know, this other plant because they, the fungus will get passed back and forth and they will just, you know, hurt each other. So there are like all of these different things, um, that you do need to figure out, but I think like gardening is full of heartbreak and so is, so is writing. And because, because you're there, it's full of failure. And I think, and that feels embarrassed. That goes back to embarrassment again. It's like, it feels so embarrassing to be bad at something, but it's also like in service of something else. You, you make a mistake and you learn from it. And then hopefully you don't make that same mistake or you make that mistake to a lesser extent next time. I want to ask you, what mistakes do you feel like you're trying to reconcile yourself with right now creatively, or I guess as a gardener? Um, I mean, creatively, I, I'm working on a book right now that is, that I'm, that is kind of completely changing shape in front of me. And I've, I'm about two years into the project. I mean, time is such a slippery thing. It's always hard for me to know how long I've been working on something because it's hard for me to identify the beginning of something. Like you're, you're sort of ruminating an idea and an idea, I think sometimes for a long time before you start to work on it or before you start to realize it's part of a longer project. Um, so, but, but I mean, probably about two years of work into a project that I'm just realizing I'm not interested in, in the same way I thought I was, or that I'm actually interested in this other related element. So then figuring out how to, how to recast my focus without feeling like I just wasted two years is a struggle. Do you feel like compelled to hang on to the thing just so you won't have quote unquote wasted two years? Well, it's like the sunk cost fallacy, right? Like I definitely wonder that part of me is like, is this, is this just like a, like a failed project and I need to move on to something else? But is there still something here that's compelling me? Because I think there is a reason that you're drawn to something, even if you, your intellectual, your creative interests sort of surpass that or change, there's maybe still the germ of what you were drawn to is still meaningful. And I think part, I mean, I think with this subject, I mean, this is for, uh, it's, I sold it as a novel. It's called terrible men. And I, and I, I felt, you know, I was younger when I sold it. I was in, in my late twenties and I was writing from a place that I'm not in anymore. And I was interested in sort of investigating things that don't really feel that compelling to me anymore, but there is a sort of a jar element to it that I'm very curious about and that I would love to talk about, but that I'm, I feel sort of embarrassed. Like it feels like a sort of, it feels anti-intellectual to investigate relationships. Like I think, and it feels, you know, with, with, with sort of the concerns of the world right now, it feels small. And I think a lot of writers go through that phase of feeling like, why does this, why does this matter? And I think I'm yes. in that stage again. And I, and I also like, I just don't want to write a book. That's like, I don't want to write like a boy crazy book. You know what I mean? Like, it feels like <laughs> I've been, I've been talking about boys since I was like seven years old, you know, like on the tire swing, you know, like I, I don't want to keep doing it. But what I've realized, I'm not actually interested in men in particular. I'm interested in the way that women 
talk about men. And I think that's very interesting. Like the, you know, David Foster Wallace's brief interviews with hideous men is a very flawed book, but was really interesting in the way that it captured voices. And it's like, what would that look like if it were women who were doing the talking? And if we kind of investigated what it means, what the way in which we talk about and how we disclose information, how that works. And I'm also sort of interested in like the what's next about how we talk about men, like in a sort of post me too, you know, I, I don't know, I guess I feel like there was this moment when speaking out about, you know, like sexual trauma or abuse or um, just like kind of banal mistreatment was like kind of revelatory and now it feels kind of passe. So I'm interested in like, what's the next, how, how will this thing that, that occupies so much of so many people's mental space, how will we, how will we develop a new language to talk about this and like what role will it play sort of in our consciousness? Thresholds is a production of Lit Hub Radio. We're produced by Drew Broussard and Justin Alvarez. Music and editing by Laura Faye Oshavud of Arthur Moon. Our art is by Kirsten Huber. Special thanks to Farrar Strauss and Drew. I'm Jordan Kissner. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at jordan.kissner. We'll see you next week. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.